Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. The timing for um, the arrival of the, of the um, orphans was particularly uh, interesting because a new family had just moved to be part of the congregation and they had worked for 10 years in Kyrgyzstan and so they spoke fluent Russian and then they'd also been working for the last eight years in Turkey so they spoke fluent Turkish. So the, the wife in that couple has been the one coordinating uh, between the, the Turkish church, the English church, and uh, a Russian church, which um, uh, the, the, the people in the church are appalled by what their country is doing. And, um, excuse me, and they, they, they want to reach out and make a difference for the Ukrainians. I wasn't supposed to cry at this point. Um, um, uh, and you can pray for them because there's an understandable distrust between the Ukrainians who are welcoming these, these um, orphans and working with them and this Russian congregation. And so you can pray that the, um, that it, the, the, the grace of God and the love of God will shine through these Russians who are seeking to help and care for these orphans who have been, who have been made refugees by their own country, right? So I, I appreciate your prayer for that. Just want to read um, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning we will hear your voice through this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. So there's a debate going on. There's a debate going on right across the Muslim world, from Morocco to Indonesia. It's been, been, gone, been going on for years. Sometimes it's quite loud, other times it's relatively quiet, but the debate goes on. And the question is really quite simple. The question is, what is the appropriate name for Christians to use to refer to God? But the answer is anything but simple. There are strong feelings on all sides. In some places, you'll find people arguing it is totally inappropriate for Christians to use the Arabic name for God. Meanwhile, in Malaysia, Christians have gone to court against the government for the right to do exactly that. And I think Psalm 67 has something to say to that. Many of the Psalms are really quite nationalistic. They're focused on God's goodness to Israel, his covenant faithfulness, faithfulness to his people, both as a group and as individuals. 
And many of them take a position that looks out at the surrounding nations as enemies or competitors. And there's some, even some extreme expressions of hatred, like in Psalm 137, that calls for the children of Babylonians to be dashed against the rocks. But Psalm 67 is very different. It's radically different. And the difference starts right in the first verse. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. What's so radical about that, you ask? It's asking a blessing on the people of Israel. Nothing unusual there. Well, it may not sound radical to us, but I think it is. Why would that be? Because it uses the wrong name for God. Verse 1 of Psalm 67 is a clear reference to Numbers, two, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, which is known as an Aaronic blessing. The Aaronic blessing was the prescribed way for a Jewish priest to speak a blessing over the congregation. And it's still used to this day in synagogue services around the world. And depending on your church tradition, it may be used, it's used regularly at the close of many church services. If you're an Anglican, it's the last thing you pray at night before you go to bed. I'm sure most of us recognize it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. I don't know if you notice the difference there. Number six says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. They are claiming the blessing for themselves. The order is a little bit different, but that's not what's important. In most Bibles, the word Lord there is in block capitals. That means that the underlying word in Hebrew is Yahweh. But the word in Psalm 67 isn't Lord, it's God. Instead of Yahweh, it's Elohim. It deliberately changes the name of God. Now, one of my, one of my uh, colleagues in Turkey is a Bible scholar of some, some repute. And so when I mentioned this to him, that was, this is where I was going with this message, um, he challenged me to go back and check uh, that I wasn't making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, Mark's very skeptical about hanging major theological points on differences between words which you know, often work as parallels, like you know, logos and rhema or agape and phileo, and in this case, Yahweh and Elohim. So I went back and I checked every reference to the ironic blessing in the Old Testament. Bible software is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and I discovered a couple of things. One is that Psalm 67 verse 1 is the most explicit reference to the ironic blessing in the entire Old Testament. The other is that there is one other place where the writer replaces Yahweh with Elohim when he quotes number 6, and that's in Psalm 80. And I think that is actually a parallel because it goes back and forwards between Yahweh and Elohim, Yahweh and Elohim. It's a stylistic decision. But I think something different is happening here in Psalm 67. There's a whole area of study called intertextuality uh, that focuses on how Scripture uses Scripture, sometimes modifying it in the process. Um, it's an area of special interest to me. I was writing a thesis on it until I got called as a pastor and discovered that, like many men, I can't do two things at once. It's true. 
I think that whenever Scripture quotes Scripture and in the process tweaks it in some way, there's always something important going on. For instance, in Romans 4.13, Paul takes God's promise to Abraham that he would inherit the land, and he changes it to his offspring received the promise that he would inherit the world. I think that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is deliberately expanding God's promise from one ethnic group in one location to all people everywhere on earth. And I think something similar is going on here in Psalm 67, where it takes such a core text of Jewish national faith as the ironic blessing and changes the name for God. Because names are important in the Bible. They're not just labels. Our names are basically labels, right? So we know this, this guy's George and that guy's Peter, right? Um, Names in the Bible tell us something about the person and their character. Uh, it represents the whole person. A change of name often represents a change of character so when, or, or relationship. So like when Abram becomes Abraham or Jacob becomes Israel. Names are important. So right at the beginning of the psalm, swapping out Yahweh for Elohim communicates something important. I think it communicates a broadening of God's blessing. Yahweh is a name revealed to Moses. It's tied up with salvation, covenant-making. It's explicitly for the people of Israel. Yahweh is the one who saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. Yahweh is the one who brought the Israelites into a special covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. Yahweh is the one who gave them the promised land. Elohim, on the other hand, is a much more general name. Elohim is the God of all the nations. Elohim is the God of creation. It's the name that's used in Genesis 1 when we see God doing his mighty acts of creation. In Genesis 2, when the focus turns to his relationship with Adam, Yahweh is used. So Elohim is basically parallel to God in English or Gott in German or Dieu in French, Dios in Spanish or any other, you know, Tanra in Turkish and Allah in Arabic. By the way, um, Allah is actually Al-Illah, the God. Some, some, uh, thing, something that most folks don't realize is that that word, Illah, is um, it's a, it's borrowed from Aramaic. It's actually in the Bible. Uh, whenever your Bible says God in the Aramaic sections of the, of the, of the Old Testament, that's Ezra 4, 6, 4 to 6 and parts of chapter 7, and Daniel 2 to Seven chapters, two to seven. About ten chapters of the Old Testament aren't written in Hebrew, they're written in Aramaic. Um, whenever the word God appears there in those chapters, the Aramaic word it's translating is Elah. And although the Gospels were written in Greek, Jesus actually spoke Aramaic. So whenever Jesus says God in the, in the Gospels, the sound that actually came out of his mouth would have been Elah. So Elohim like Allah, which is actually related closely to it, and the English word God, the Spanish word Dios, Persian word Chada, is a generic name for God, a name that comes from outside the covenant people of God. So opening Psalm 67 with, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us, is already making a huge statement. The writer is saying that the God of the Aaronic blessing in number 6 Yahweh is the same God 
that peoples of the earth know by their own names for him. And in the case of Israel's immediate neighbors, that name was Elohim. So just as English speakers can talk, they're not Christians, but they can talk about God, and it may not need it mean exactly the same thing as we do, but close enough to start a conversation. So Psalm 67 looks out beyond the borders of the faithful and prays for God to be known by their neighbors. And it uses their neighbor's name for God to make that prayer. So the writer is taking the blessing that was explicitly for the people of Israel and expanding it into a prayer that as God blesses his people, his salvation and praise would be extended over all the earth and to all nations. And I find that pretty exciting. So with that in mind, let's look at the rest of Psalm 67. So first of all, Psalm 67 is a prayer for us to pray. It starts off quite normally as a prayer for blessing on God's people. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. When I first moved to Canada, uh, Marilyn and I had been living in community, actually with Stephen Lynn, uh, on very little money, and I got really upset. All the stuff on Christian television it seemed to be all about getting stuff from God rather than serving God. Um, and actually was talking to uh, Lynn this morning, and she was reflecting on arriving here and uh, being, uh, when they first arrived back from, from the Netherlands, they were living in a rented trailer in Derry, and she was so excited to have her own toilet and her own washer and dryer. She wasn't quite sure what to do with those things. So that was, that was the background that we came from when we arrived in, in Canada. And God had to embarrass me with his goodness. A house, job, car, schooling. Before I began to see it was okay to be blessed. And of course, we couldn't have spent years on the field without people like yourselves sharing their material blessings with us so that we could have a place to live, food to eat, all that, stuff, all that kind of stuff. So it's okay to pray for blessing. But Psalm 67 shows us that we need to pray not just for ourselves, but for all of God's people. The psalm asks that God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. I did a search through the psalms. Even though there are some very personal psalms, nowhere do you find the phrase, bless me. It's always bless us. It's this communal emphasis that you find throughout the Bible. So when we pray this psalm, we're praying not just for ourselves, but for all of God's people. In Indiana, in Pennsylvania, in the U.S., in the Americas, on every continent of the world. By the way, the only people in the Bible who actually say, bless me, are uh, Jacob, Esau, Laban, Pharaoh, and Jabez. It's hardly a star-studded cast. And actually, only Jacob and Jabez are saying that to God, like when like Pharaoh says to Moses, bless me. Anyway, so, so this psalm is a prayer for blessing on God's people. It's also a prayer that God's salvation would touch the world. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. That, that at the beginning of verse 2 is really important. 
The focus of this prayer is so that, is that God would bless his people so that his ways may be known on earth, his salvation among all people, all nations. So the psalm may start off focused on blessing for God's people, but it very quickly pivots and looks outward from the people of God towards the world. And I love this back here. Love God, love others, reach the world. Excellent. Um, <laughs> you know, it looks out at the world around and it says, yes, God, please bless us. But not for our sake, for their sake and for your sake. That's why we ask God's blessing. Not for our sake, but for their sake and for God's sake. This is at the core of what it means to be God's people. Being blessed to be a blessing. That was what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 too. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing and so are all of his children and that would include us. So Psalm 67 is a prayer that God would bless his people for the sake of the world. It's also a vision to catch. If you look at the Psalm 67 in your Bible or on your phone, um, you'll see the way it's laid out. It's symmetrical. There's two verses and three verses and two verses. Um, verse 5 is word for word, the same as verse 3. See, because unlike English composition, Hebrew puts a lot of emphasis on symmetry. And that's especially true in Hebrew poetry. The most basic form of symmetry in Hebrew poetry is what's called a parallelism, two lines saying the same thing in different ways. Take any verse of the Psalms at random. It's almost certainly going to be a parallelism. And that's what you see in verse 2 of Psalm 67. So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. They're symmetrical. Ways parallels salvation, earth parallels all nations. It's one of the reasons why the Psalms translate so well into other languages. It doesn't rhyme sounds and words, it rhymes ideas. You can translate that into almost any language. So parallelism, parallelism is basic to Hebrew poetry. And there's another kind of symmetry there, and it's called chiasm. So that's something else that Psalm 67 has. So rather than starting at the beginning, you remember high school, you were taught how to do a, do a you know, do a, um, uh, do a, an essay, do any writing. You start at the beginning, you give your thesis statement, then you, you know, work your way through and give your conclusion at the end. And we're all, all taught to do that. They still teach that in high school? Yeah? Okay, all right. Um, we never know, right? Uh, that's not the way Hebrew works. One of the things is Hebrew writing often uh, works from both ends towards the middle. So, uh, and Psalm 67 works that way. So verse 1 is matched by verse 7, verse 2 is matched by verse 6, verse 5 and verse 3 are basically are identical to each other. So in Psalm 67, the focus of the poem isn't on the first line or the last line. It's right in the middle. It's verse 4. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. This is the focus of the psalm. And it's a vision of a future that we need to catch if we're going to be sustained in what God has called us to. It's a vision of a world that's been reached by the gospel. It's a vision of a world in which people are glad and sing for joy because they know God, and as a result, they are freer, healthier, and happier than they were before. It's a vision of all people everywhere having access to, the, to God's kingdom of justice 
and goodness. So why are we here? Why do we pray for God's blessing on our lives and the lives of our loved ones? Well, certainly compassion for others is part of that. So is a desire to see individuals come to a saving relationship with God. But there's more to it than that. It's a vision of the world the way God intended it to be. A vision of justice and peace. And that only happens when people order their lives under God's just rule. Whether it's in the Psalms or Isaiah or one of the other prophets, wherever you have a vision of a peaceful and prosperous future of people beating their swords into plowshares, is always as a result of them acknowledging God's rightful place in their life. And that's why God, verse 4 is bracketed by verses 3 and 5. Just in case we get carried away with you know, binding up the brokenhearted and setting captives free, we're reminded that the ultimate goal is, may all the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. We don't serve people first and foremost for their sakes. We serve them for God's sake. We do it because Jesus died for those people. Our goal can be summed up by the watchword of the Moravians in the 1700s who would sell themselves into indentured servitude for seven years or 14 years and then be shipped overseas off into the Caribbean or to North America. And then when they finished their indentures, they would be, set, they'd be free and they'd go and preach the gospel. Why would they do that? Their passion was that the lamb that was slain might see the reward of his sufferings. That was their heart. That's a vision that calls people to work in tough places. A vision of the wounds of the world healed in Jesus' name and the peoples of the earth responding in praise to him. And it will happen. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we have a prayer to pray that God will bless us for the sake of the world. We have a vision to catch of a world that has been reached with the gospel and God's name being praised throughout the world. Now we come to verses 6 and 7, which take us back to the the theme of the opening verses with a slightly different twist. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. The The prayer ties the prosperity of God's people to their success in proclaiming his kingdom. Then the land will yield its harvest. So verses 1 and 2 are a prayer for God's blessing. Verses 6 and 7 look back at that blessing being effective and the completed task of the world being reached with the gospel. So we can move from praying for a blessing to claiming a a promise of blessing. Then the land will yield its harvest and God, our God, will bless us. But it's only because we understand the priorities. It's only when we put God's blessings, priorities first, that we can be trusted with God's blessings. World Vision was founded by a man called Dr. Bob Pierce. And he had a prayer, which has become quite famous in some circles, that his heart would be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And he traveled around the world, handing out millions of dollars to help people in need. And so when we were at Heidebeck, that's a place in the Netherlands where we lived along with the, the, the Baslers, 
he came to visit the, the, the base in, in, in Heidebeck and he saw the state of the kitchen. It was an absolute mess. And he said, the heart of any community is the kitchen. And so he shelled out the money for a full commercial kitchen. They had a great kitchen. Yeah. Someone once said of him that he had the sanctity of a relaxed grasp. It didn't matter how many millions passed through his hands, none of it ever touched his heart. And God could trust him with his blessings because he had the right priorities. And of course, the final result of all this is that all the ends of the earth will fear God. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the idea of reaching the world for God begins in the New Testament. It's deeply embedded in the Old Testament. In the belief that Yahweh, the God of the covenant, is also Elohim, the God of all the earth. 2008, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was a chief rabbi of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is a, an association of like 54 different nations that most of them used to be British colonies. They make, about, make up about a third of the population of the world. Um, so he was invited to speak at the Lambeth Conference, that's a gathering of Anglican bishops um, from worldwide. Uh, after he spoke, someone asked him about how he viewed the church's mission. His response, like any self-respecting rabbi, was to ask a question in return. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> how many Jews are there in China, he asked. Apparently there were five. He then went on to say that the Jews were given a message to take to the world, but it is the Christians who have actually carried out that task. We did not take it to the world, he said. You took it to the world. You have taken the message of one who was a Jew to the world. And that is the vision at the heart of Psalm 67. Why do we share the gospel? Because of the vision at the heart of this psalm. The vision of the nations rejoicing in God's blessings because they have bowed the knee to his loving rule. Why do we pray for God to bless his church? So that those blessings will overflow to bless the world. That's our calling. That's the calling of all of us as the church, not just those of us who work overseas. That's the calling of the church. That's the calling of God's people, is to be a blessing to the world. That's why Jesus came, that they might have life and have it to the full. And he tells us, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for the awesome calling you put upon our lives. Lord, we confess that we don't always live up to that calling, that sometimes we get over-involved in blessings for us for our own sakes. Lord, help us to remember that we are blessed to be a blessing, that you call us to be a blessing to the world, and you call us to share the gospel that all nations might come before you 
and bring praise to your name. In your name we pray, amen.